You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. Our guest today is an incredible scholar of science and religion whose recent dissertation, which he is currently adapting into a book, discusses ways of reconciling relativistic physics with a flowing model of time in which past, present, and future are really distinct from one another. It also explores how a relativistic theory of flowing time can complement Abrahamic theology and serve as the basis for a view of existence centered on personhood. Here to unpack what all of that means and more is our good friend, Dr. Timothy Manis. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Hi, it's great Yay. to be here. Yeah, I've been, a, I've been a regular listener and I've been, I've been wanting to get on for quite some time. I have been, we have been talking about having you on since almost the beginning of the podcast, so I do apologize yes. that it's taken me No, you guys so have had a lot of things to talk about. To, uh, <laughs> to, to clarify for our listeners, um, the wonderful uh, Sinai and Synapses Fellowship that is, is run by the, uh, the Jewish Center for Learning and Leadership, the, uh, the, the same cohort of fellows where uh, the, the hosts of the podcast met, uh, I also had the privilege of meeting them as well. So we were we were all friends in that that fellowship. So we've we've known each other for a while now. It was a very good cohort. Yeah. And the very first time that I met Tim, um, I remember us standing awkwardly as people do when they first meet, maybe nibbling on a bagel or something, and saying, "What are you doing?" And of course, I felt completely out of place because, you know, I'm a I'm a pastor who likes science, and I'm in a room filled with people with advanced degrees and understandings of things that are beyond my my understanding. And that, you know, that, uh, uh, what do they call it, that imposter syndrome that everyone mm -hmm. feels, you know? Everyone feels it. And I do say Me everyone, because we all think we're imposters, yep. right? <laughs> yep, 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 yep. And yep. I was really feeling it. And I was all, I had done some work in seminary on um on relativistic time and theology and our understanding of God and salvation. And so when I asked him what his, he was working on and he said, he explained some of his dissertation and how it was exactly what I had been working on. I got so excited. And I said, we need to talk. I need to read this. I need to, we need to, to hear it. And then when he started explaining it to me, it went so far over my head. <laughs> I realized how much I still had to learn. And I have, and he's been really helpful in helping me to understand some things and inspiring me to learn more and to dig deeper into the things I thought I knew and the implications that I thought were there. And so it's, it's, uh, it, it's really nice to have you here to help op unpack and open up some of this stuff. I think it was... Uh, St. Augustine that said, I understand time fully until you ask me to explain it. Yep. I, I, um, <laughs> that's, that's one of my go-to quotations. Uh, I think my, the, the introduction of my dissertation starts with that. Ah, well, there you yep. go. <laughs> that's, that, that, that'd be fun to defend, I would imagine, where you just start off by saying, I can't explain any of this stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And but, well, one of the things I want to argue is that, uh, is that you know the the average person that that you, dear listener, understand time, in uh, you you have imp an important understanding of time that that you ought that ought to be taken into account, uh, and that one of the ways that uh, that a lot of the philosophy of time over the past you know century and a bit uh, has has failed is in failing to take our everyday experience of time into account. 
So I think that, uh, you know, I, I want to be careful about trying about, about going over people's heads. Um, I think it was Einstein who said that um, if that happens, that that one of the things that that's a sign of is that the person who is explaining doesn't understand their subject as well as they should. So, yeah, so, yeah. that's the, that's what sets like a, Jesus's teachings apart is that you can say a whole lot in a little bit because you really get it mm-hmm. or Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can help us to understand a little bit. You, you mentioned that um, we have an experience of time. I, I think that kind of goes without saying mm-hmm. that the past is what you did. The present is what you're doing and the future is what you will do. Mm-hmm. And they're all connected causally, but that's about it. Right. You know, and, and that there's a static flow of time like a conveyor belt. Almost right, but that's not that's not exactly how things panned out in the early 1900s. Yes, that's true. Um, there, there are these these three modes of of time, these three sort of general tenses, you might say. There, you know, if you get into the grammar of it, you can come up with more um, that uh, that uh, constitute our relationship with time. Um, the, uh, the the philosopher Immanuel Kant talked about time as one of the categories of our experience. You know this thing that that sort of gives shape to to the way we experience the world, um, and you know we we experience that the past is accessed through through memory. Um, that's that the past is is this set thing that we that, that we uh, that we know of. It's definite for us uh, to some extent. It's definite, but um, you know it's, we we forget things as well. Um, but uh, it's it's set. It has its own existence, and the future doesn't exist yet. It's, um, it's the, the domain of, of sort of planning and also guesswork. Um, it's, it's there to be defined. And, and the present is where those two things come together, but it's also more than that. It's, it's the, um, it's the, the way of, of it's the mode of time's existence in which we can act, uh, in which we, we make decisions and, and do things. And those, it's those decisions that that shape the uh, the future, and all of those things are 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 deeply tied in to our way of living in the world as human beings, right? You know, that's all of those have have a very sort of narrative kind of character to them. It's it's like a it's like a story, right? That that uh, we talk about it having a beginning and a middle and an ending, hmm. um, and. Uh, even before Einstein, uh, a lot of philosophers and scientists were kind of suspicious about that way of talking about time, precisely because it was so human. So, you know, the, uh, the, the great philosopher Bertrand Russell, who, um, you know, contributed so much to the philosophy of mathematics, among other things, um, uh, writing before Einstein, said that, uh, you know, basically, the fact that, that this way of thinking about time has so much of the human in it, um, has so much of our subjective, uh, personal way of, of, of experiencing things into it, that, um, that there must be something wrong with it, basically. Mm. That in order to be really scientific, um, where scientific you know, is considered to mean the same thing as rigorous, and, um, you know, and well thought out, then a way of thinking also has to be objective. It can't rely on 
any particular point of view. And so um, Russell, among others, uh, thought it was better to imagine that that time was uh, didn't really have this this past, present, future character. That the differences among these three ways of of, of experiencing time were just an illusion that are are brought on by by some some weird thing about human consciousness or another, um, and that in reality all events in time exist in the same kind of way. In in my work and uh, in the work of a lot of philosophers of time, um, we draw on the uh, a category that got set up by this this philosopher named James McTaggart, um, who uh, wrote about sort of two ways that we have of talking about time, uh, the A series and the B series. Like many philosophers, he was not really great at creative names, um, <laughs> and uh, so the the A series. Uh, is is uh, it involves differences in past and present and future uh, in that way that we talked about. Um, it imagines that uh, that uh, uh, that the time flows, you might say, that that an event is uh, is in the future and then it's in the present and then it's in the past, uh, and it, it has all of these these different characteristics of past, present, and future as time goes on. Um, and then, on the other hand, there is the B series. And in the B series, events don't have the past, present, and future relationships. All they have are the relationships of earlier and later. Um, hmm. So, for instance, if you can imagine looking in like a history textbook, um, and you see events on a timeline, um, where, you know, uh, 1066, the, um, the, uh, the Norman invasion of England happens, and... You know, there's in in this month of that year, this happens. And then in a later month of that year, this happens. And all of the events are sort of laid out next to each other on a line. Um, all of those events sort of have the same kind of existence. There, there, there aren't the sort of different modes of existence that you, that you see in the A-series, the past, the present, and the future stuff. And uh, in our daily lives, we use both of these all the time. Um, Whenever you are planning out your schedule for the day, um, you are thinking about time in a B-series kind of way. Um, you're saying, well, all right, I'm going to sit down uh, to record this podcast at 9 a.m. Uh, and then, you know, for my, you know, I, I should probably have lunch in there somewhere. So let's pencil that in for noon. I've got this, this other phone call that's scheduled at 3.30, and you're sort of lay laying these things out that way, sort of in, in kind of as though you were laying them out in space. Um, and, uh, and again, it's just, a, it's just an earlier, later kind of relationship. Um, but in order to, to take that schedule and translate it into something that you actually do, you also have to bring in the A-series. Um, there comes a point where, you know, it's not enough just to say, you know, all right, I am starting this podcast at 9 a.m. You are not able to actually do the things necessary to start the, po to start the podcast until, unless you have the, the impression that at some point, 9 a.m. is now. Um, hmm. and, uh, and now is a concept that the B-series does not have. Um, 
there is there is no one moment that it picks out as having that special characteristic of nowness, that moment where you know we are where we where we are acting in the present, where things are present to us. You know, there's there's just earlierness and laterness, and uh, and so it, it takes that that intersection between the A series and the B series in order to to make the uh, the events that we schedule happen. So. You know, we, we have both a, a ways of thinking of time and B ways of thinking about time, and we use them both all the time. Uh, McTaggart's question, or his way of framing the question, is which one of these two ways of thinking is the more fundamental one? Is it the case that time is, is really like the B series, that you know events all have the same kind of existence, and they're ordered by earlier and, relate, earlier and later, and our sense of past, present, and future is, is some weird kind of illusion that comes out of our brains? Um, or is it the case that uh, time really has a past, a present, and a future, and the B-series just comes out of our way of writing things down? Um, and uh, it turns out that, uh, that McTaggart actually thought that neither of these was true, and that he thought that, <laughs> time, was, that time was just an illusion. Um, but um, the, uh, the, the... he his terminology sort of gave names to two of the major camps. Um, the, the people who think that the, the past, present, future way of thinking about time is the more fundamental one uh, tend to call themselves a-theorists or, talk, or to talk about flowing time. Um, and the people who think that the, the B-series of time, the, the uh, earlier and later, there is no now, way of thinking about time is more fundamental. They call themselves the B theorists. So uh, for instance, Bertrand Russell is, is a good example of, of, a, of a B theorist. Um, and you have, uh, you know, even quite, quite distinguished philosophers and, uh, and scientists, people like, uh, like uh, the, 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 the eminent French, theolo- uh, uh, French philosopher, Henri Bergson um, was a major proponent of, of the A theory. Um, the uh, the physicist Arthur Eddington um, was a major proponent of of the A theory. Um, so this is this is already a hot topic of discussion coming into the 20th century when Einstein is still a patent clerk and hasn't made a, hasn't made a name for himself yet. <laughs> um, but then comes relativity, uh, as as uh, as Zach has has already talked about, dear listeners. Uh, <laughs> and and that throws a wrench in everything. And it turns out that um, the assumption that uh, was made in, in Newtonian physics, and frankly, had probably been made by just about everyone else ever, um, that uh, that everybody shares the same now, and that you know now is the same moment, uh, you know, here on the east coast of the United States. Uh, as it is in, uh, you know, on the West Coast, that you know, it might be the case that the time that we call, you know, 10:30 on the East Coast is 6:30 on the West Coast. We, you know, we 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 assign it to different times on the clock, but we can agree that it's now, right? That you know, it's, and you see this in like in like a, you know TV scheduling, for instance, you know, or at least you know in the days before streaming. We used to we used to talk about TV scheduling this way, but you know this thing is this the show is going to come on at um, you know seven thirty Eastern six thirty Central. That you know we we assign the, the the time when the show begins 
uh, different moments on the clock, depending on the time zone. But we can agree that the, the time when the show starts is the same, even when, if people assign it to two different moments on the clock. Hmm. So, uh, so this, this assumption that, that there's the same now that exists here on the East Coast and over there on the West Coast and over on the planet Mars and over in the Andromeda galaxy, there's all one now. Uh, Einstein says, nope, nope, that's not true. Um, that how we experience time depends on uh, where we are and how fast we're moving. And that people are going to disagree about how long things take um, and about what things take place at the same time as each other, uh, depending on how they're moving relative to the events that they're talking about. And uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of multisyllabic way of, of talking about that concept is the, the relativity of simultaneity. Simultaneous, mm -hmm. the, uh, the fact of happening at the same time. Simultaneity, the quality of happening at the same time. Uh, that's relative in, uh, in, in Einstein's terms. And, uh, and the, the sort of classic example that, uh, that we have for that is, uh, goes back to Einstein. It, it involves trains. Uh, and uh, I think that the trains are going to come up a lot as, as an image uh, as, <laughs> as I talk about this. So uh, you, you imagine you've got, you've got a train that's, that's moving past a station, and in the middle of one of the train cars, uh, there is a flashbulb um, that will go off, let's say for an art project. <laughs> Can read it? Um, <laughs> and the flashbulb goes off in the middle of the train, and light starts coming out of the flashbulb and going toward the two ends of the train. Uh, you remember from the previous episode on relativity that the speed of light is uh, invariant. It's the same for all observers. But we might say uh, for observers in, in all reference frames, for all points of view. And so a person who is... Uh, sitting in the middle of the train next to the flashbulb, um, let's say it's the artist, um, is going to, uh, from, from that person's point of view, since the light bulb is in the middle of the train, uh, light from the light bulb is uh, going to hit both ends of the car at the same time. Light bulb is exactly in the middle. Light is traveling at the same speed. So it is uh, going to take the same amount of time to hit both ends of the uh, of the car, the front and the back. So, from in that person's reference frame, uh, the reference frame of the artist on the train, the moment when the light hits the front of the car and the moment when the light hits the back of the car are going to be simultaneous. They'll happen at the same time. From the perspective of a person who is sitting on a platform as the train goes by. Um, you know, presumably they're waiting for the local, and this is the express that's passing. Um, <laughs> and they're they're looking at this car, wondering what on earth is going on with this flashbulb and this train car. Um, from their perspective, um, the uh, the the back of the car is is uh, is sort of moving toward this uh, this you know the place where the uh, where the light was emitted. And the front of the car is moving away from it. Uh, 
So from the perspective of the person who is, you know, sitting at uh, sitting on the platform where the train car is moving past, um, the light will hit the back of the train earlier than it hits the front of the train. So those two events are not simultaneous. One happens before the other. And the, the weird thing about relativity, or one of the many weird things about relativity, is that, uh, <laughs> that it tells us that, yeah. that neither of these people is right and neither of them is wrong. Um, it's not the case that, that motion is introducing some kind of, of distortion into things and that the person who is sitting still is right because you can't say who's sitting still and who's in motion. All you can do is say that, you know, this is in motion with respect to this. So there, there's no matter of fact about whether or not these two events happen at the same time. They happen at the same time in one reference frame and they don't happen at the same time in, the, in another reference frame. And that's all you can say. The, the, the simultaneity of these two events is relative. Yeah. So if that's the case, then the idea of now becomes kind of complicated. You can't say that, you know, uh, you, you can't say definitively, I should say, that, you know, a, a given set of events are all happening at the same time, a, a time that we can call now. Some people moving at some speed with respect to those events are going to assign them all to the same now. Some people are going to say that, you know, events A and B are in the past of event C. And uh, some people are going to uh, divide things up differently altogether. So past and present and future from a, uh, the point of view of relativity become a lot harder to divide up. And uh, so a lot of people, uh, what they get out of this is the idea that this must mean that relativity is, is basically giving us a knockdown scientific physical argument that the, uh, or not just an argument, but a proof that the B theory, the, um, the only earlier and later, no past, present, and future way of looking at time is really the more fundamental one. That past and present and future are just things that human beings with their weird little brains are imposing on the, <laughs> the grand impersonal scientific universe. How are we doing so far? <laughs> Great. I'm just listening because it still always blows my mind. All the stuff from time just blows my mind. It's mind blowing. Well, anytime you say that, any anytime you say that, uh, you experience it this way. But the mathematics suggests that it's this other way. I mean, that in and of itself, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? You're blowing minds, right? And 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 that's you know that and that plays in with um with that that way of of thinking about science that that Russell had, right? That you know, here we have this this problem that philosophers were debating about for, for centuries and centuries and along come the physicists and they solve it. Right. That, um, that, you know, it's that philosophy is, is about endless fruitless debate and science comes in and cuts the Gordian knot, uh, mm. and gives us, you know, the way things really are. And 
you know, avoids all of this fog of mere language and gives us the truth in mathematics. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that, that philosopher after philosopher in the 20th century, uh, brings out of this. And, uh, one of the things that they, that they do, not universally, but really kind of a lot, is that they, they go on from saying, um, you know, mathematics is, you know, is reliable in a way that subjectivity and language uh, aren't, to saying that basically the human experience of personhood is an illusion of, of a similar kind. That uh, that all of all of our the the, the subjectivities of our experience, um, what uh, what what you sometimes call uh, qualia, the the howness of our perceptions. You know, you might people talk about the redness of a rose, as opposed to the knowledge that you know light is being reflected off of the rose at such and such a such and such a wavelength. You know, or the um, the, the the emotional side of of hearing music as opposed to just being able to describe it in terms of, you know, of frequency and amplitude, that, that all of that stuff is, you know, is, is illusion. And that the, the math of, of those experiences is all that's really real. And so that has a lot of implications for religion, right? Hmm. Because so much of, you know, of, of, our religious experience is personal in this way. Um, one of my, my favorite uh, philosopher theologians, the, the, the Dane with the rather difficult to pronounce name of Søren Kierkegaard, um, you know, has, has this, this whole book um, where he talks about how the, the, the sort of basis of, of religious experience is this thing that happens inside of you that you can never fully communicate to someone else. And that all of our attempts to talk about religion are attempts that fail, more or less, hmm. to, to take this inexpressible thing and put it out where other people can see it. And, hmm. you know, and, and here you have this, this, this emerging um, philosophical viewpoint that, that claims to have, you know, to have received basically scientific proof for itself that that that's just nonsense that that nothing that's inexpressible in mathematics can even really exist that anything else is a delusion and even if you you don't follow things quite that far even if you don't take from this the uh you know that that you know that science is really showing that that human subjectivity is an illusion taking this this sort of beef theory view of time um, poses a lot of problems for religion by itself. So if the B theory is true, time looks a lot like space and all, you know, all the, uh, all, all, all parts of space, all, all spots in space exist sort of alongside each other and in the same way. Uh, and, you know, here's where I, here's where I bring in another one of my train analogies. Um, that, uh, <laughs> lots of trains. Lots of train analogies. I like trains. Um, well, they go in straight lines, so it's very convenient. Yes, well, you know, most of the time, you know, if you're, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, if you're in the loop in Chicago, all bets are off for a lot of reasons. But um, 
Um, so, but, but imagine that I'm, I'm, I'm on a train that's traveling in a reasonably straight line. I'm on the Amtrak going up the East Coast, right? And imagine that my train is temporarily stopped in Philadelphia. And, you know, maybe I'm going to get off at the station and, and grab a cheesesteak and then get on before I move on north. Um, so when I'm there on the train in Philadelphia, right, um, Washington, D.C. still exists, even though I've left it, right? It's not present to me now, but it's still there. And New York and Boston, even though I haven't gotten there yet, exist. They're real. Um, there are things going on there that are, that are happening, even though I don't perceive them, they are real. So the, uh, in, in this, this, this B-theoretic way of looking at time, um, now is like Philadelphia, and the past is like D.C., and the future is like New York and Boston. Um, the past is still there, even though that's not where I am now. And the, uh, the future is out there. It exists like New York and Boston do, even though I'm not there now. And the present doesn't have anything really special about it. It's just where I happen to find myself at a particular moment, right? So if that's the case, if that really is the best description of how time is, then a lot of the stories that we tell that involve time, which is to say all stories that we tell, um, become, well, they become sort of different. So in, uh, in, in religion, right, we have a lot of stories about, say, about people changing their lives, right? Where, you know, in, uh, in, in the Bible, God says to God says to people, you know, turn your lives around, and then as a result of your turning your life around, this will happen to you. Or if you don't turn your lives around, this won't happen to you. Yes. Um, so that sort of way of thinking about about the stories of people's lives depends on a particular way of talking about time, right? The, uh, the events after you make that, that critical decision to turn your life around or not, to you know, have some conversion or some repentance or some whatever else, that depends on an idea that the future doesn't exist yet, that it's there to be shaped by your decisions. And so it makes sense to talk about the events that happen after that, that decision as being in some way more important than the events that happened before. Right, that what happens later can change the meaning of what happened earlier, can in some limited way maybe make up for what happened earlier, can be more relevant than what happened earlier. This, this, uh, you know, is, is, this, is this sounding plausible based on, on you know, the way that you think about time in, in, a, in a regular everyday way? I, I hear kind of, at least in, in uh, the scriptural analogy, there's kind of uh, two stories that pop to my mind. I think of that whole that whole paradigm is so important for the prophets, mm -hmm. right? They they come before the people and they say, "Here's what you've done. 
here's how, what you need to change or else this is what will happen. Right. Right. That's sort of the formula of every one of the prophets. Mm -hmm. They're giving you a chance to repent, to change, to move. So your future is not totally decided yet. Mm -hmm. um, the future is uncertain. It's being written now. And then the other story I think of is that of Moses and Pharaoh, where God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then God hardens Pharaoh's heart mm -hmm. because God has an ending in mind already right. and is going to like the, the future is unchangeable in that story. Mm -hmm. There was always going to be plagues, always going to be an exodus, always going to be that. And God is still telling Moses to do this thing now, despite the fact that it's not going to change anything because God is going to intervene because the future is fixed already. Right. And of those two stories, people generally tend to accept the prophetic version a lot easier than the the future is already fixed and God mm -hmm. is behind the scenes, you know, making this deterministic situation. Right. Because then they think, why do I even bother? Yeah. What's the point of any of this if right. the future is already if the future is already real and whatever, you know, I, I should just sit back and and do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And which is not to say that there haven't been some theologians who have tried to embrace that that sort of the future is set way of looking at things, right? Where oh, you, know, sure. you have people who are in favor of, of a strong view of, of what, it, what gets called predestination, where where God has already set mm -hmm. out your entire future for you, um, where all of the events of your life exist like like this, you know, like like all the events in a book, right? Where everything has already happened even before you've in, in a circumstance, even before you've read it. It's just a matter of you know, going through the pages until you get to the, the ending that was already there. And, uh, you know, people like, uh, you know, uh, like uh, John Calvin in the, uh, in, in the Christian tradition uh, tend to have a, a, a strong view of predestination. That's, um, that is uh, a really common view in, uh, in Muslim theology. Um, it's a, uh, you get a lot of, of Muslim thinkers who have that, that, that particular uh, strong view that God has planned out all of history. Uh, it's very uncommon in Judaism. Um, you'll find very few Jewish thinkers who uh, wouldn't rather go with uh, that, that sort of open future. Uh, there's, there, there's very little Jewish support for the idea of predestination. So, so yeah, you, you have... You have uh, you, you can find some theologians who are who are going to be on either side of this debate, but on the whole, you're right. People do like to they do like to opt for the idea of the open future because it makes our choices more meaningful, right? It means that our choices are are made or at least you know are potentially made by us. They aren't sort of written out ahead of time for us by God. Um, yeah. And uh, that means, for instance, that um, that uh, if we're making our own choices, that uh, that that has implications for for God's responsibility for evil in the world. Um, if God has already made everybody's choices for everybody beforehand, then that means that God is responsible for all of the evil that people do. Um, that God deci already decided every time somebody was going to commit a murder. Um, right. God made that happen rather than, than the person choosing to commit that murder against God's will. Um, yeah, 
it's holding a marionette responsible for right. its, its puppeteer's actions. Right, exactly. This is the idea of, of fate, right? No. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, right? That's, that, that, yeah, that's, that's... Our fate that's a, is already written or something like that. Is that kind yeah, of the same absolutely. lines? Absolutely. I think that's, that's, that's a great one-syllable way of putting it. This is, this is exactly fate. Um, right. In the way that, that many cultures have, have had it, that the way you sometimes see it, like Greek and Roman uh, ways of talking about the world. Where everybody has yeah. their fate, uh, it's laid out. You, if you try to avoid it, it will just you know you'll just end up coming at it in a way that you didn't expect. Yeah, that's all of Oedipus right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, and that's you know it's not to say that that's um, that that's a way of, of looking at God that doesn't make sense um, in a, in a sort of abstract kind of way, but it's one that poses a lot of problems, especially for. Right an Abrahamic view of God, where we want to talk about God as, as loving and as good. And in for, it, it causes a lot of problems for the way we th- want to talk about the end of time, right? We have this idea that at the end of time, God will, 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 wipe, will wipe away every tear from people's eyes, will make things okay, um, and that God will, to some extent, treat people based on the choices that they've made during their lives. Um, and if God has decided everybody's choices for them all along the line, <laughs> then that makes a lot less sense. Um, if people's, you know, uh, if, if the, the, the changes that people make in their lives, um, if, if the events that happen after those changes always exist, and the events that happen before those changes always exist, and they exist in the same way, then it doesn't seem like there's any particular reason to treat the events afterward as being more important than the events that happened before, right? It's, it's not as though if you're looking at a map of, of the U.S., right, that you would say, all right, everything that happens east of the Mississippi um, cancels out everything that happens west of the Mississippi. You know, that would be ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And if, if all events are laid out in time, the way, you know, places are laid out in space, then it seems ridiculous in the same way to talk about events later, canceling out events that happen earlier. So, you know, there's, there's, there's no particular reason for, for God to assign people, you know, to, to treat people differently based on, on changes that they make. Um, there's no sort of final victory of good over evil. Because the evil always exists. It doesn't pass away. It's always there in the same way that the good that God eventually brings into being is always there. So even if you're, if you, even if you're not following these, a lot of these, these B-theorist philosophers in saying that, you know, that human personality doesn't really exist, the B-theory causes all kinds of problems. For, for Abrahamic theology, and the uh, the, the predestinationist uh, theologians who would be happy to go along with the B theory, they don't have a lot of responses beyond well, it's a mystery. You know, mm-hmm. God sees things God sees things differently, and it's not necessarily going to make sense to us. And that's something that we as theologians have to say a lot of the time because you know part of the way that we think about God is that, yeah, God is different from us, and God does yeah. see things differently. 
But when you basically have to take that same explanation and apply it to literally everything in the way that we talk about God interacting with human beings, then speaking for myself, I don't find that very satisfying. Mm. It, it feels to me like, though it does make sense to say that there are, there are things about God that we're not going to understand, that we should, at, at a minimum, have some things that we can understand about the way God interacts with us in our own lives. If anything should mm-hmm. be comprehensible to us, it seems like it should be that. We should be able to understand the impact of what we do. Yeah, that we can't necessarily understand the nature, the full nature of a being that exists outside of our uh, experience, our universe, but we should be able to at least understand our experience of that. Right, and, and, right. And, you know, especially if we're, if we're taking... Yeah, I was going to... Yeah, please go ahead. I was going to ask about, and you just alluded to it, that, Zach, that... Because again, it's still this is still cooking my brain here a little bit. But so the idea that God would exist outside of our understanding of time, right? Like, mm-hmm. even based on all the stuff that you're talking about here, Tim. I mean, is that okay in a theological way, or not okay? I'm not you know permission, but what are your thoughts on approaching it that way? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that's 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 another big problem that that um, that sort of exists at right angles to this one. Right, you can have sort of different positions on that, um, and uh, and imagine it as as impacting the way we think about time in different ways, right? So people um, usually want to talk about God as as knowing some things that exist in the future, right? Prophecy is you know is assuming that to some degree that God knows some things before they happen, and how are we going to to reconcile that with the way that we think about time? Well, people have ha- have proposed different things. Um, you know, if, if the B theorists are right, um, and all events already exist, then that becomes very simple to explain. You know, God knows things, God knows everything that happens because God sort of created it all at, you know, as it were at the same moment, you know, God brought all of it into existence together. Um, with, um, the, the great theologian Augustine, uh, the Christian theologian Augustine, um, he, uh, drawing on some, uh, some sort of Greco-Jewish uh, ways of, of thinking about time uh, proposes that the time is this created thing um, that that uh, that there is no time until God creates the universe, and that when God creates the universe, you know, as as God is saying, let there be light. Then then time comes into being um, with things as 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 they start. Um, and that would mean for Augustine, for instance, that God is, is outside of time in the same way that we say that God is outside of space, right? That God doesn't, you know, that, that God isn't located in space. You know, there's, there's not some place that you could go to a spaceship that you could, you know, get in a spaceship and travel to a point, and that's where God is, you know. This is one of the reasons why Star Trek V is a bad movie. Um, and uh, <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to do that. <laughs> And in the same way, there's there's no particular moment where where, where God is in time, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and so if God is is outside of time in that way, then then you can ask, you know, what what is God's relationship to time like? Um, there's this uh, this this other 
Christian thinker uh, named Boethius, who has uh, a way of thinking about time that has some subtle differences from Augustine that we may or may not end up getting into, um, has this, this sort of famous image of, of God as, um, you know, it's that God's way of looking at time is, is like a, a person in a watchtower looking down on a road, right? That the person is not on the road, and, but they see all events on the road from where they sit. Um, so, um, so God is sort of looking at time from outside and seeing it that way. And some people argue um, that God's knowledge of future events doesn't determine future events because God isn't really knowing them before they happen in a strict sense because God isn't in the scheme of before and after. That sounds like the sorts of ways that they handle um, precognition in Dune, is that the uh, he doesn't actually see what will happen. He sees what uh, they describe as a series of threads that all come out and branch off of each other of possible, probable futures based on where things are. And so when he has visions, there are things that don't necessarily happen, but are possible happenings. And then his then current actions can then determine whether or not those potential futures happen. Yeah. It's, you could, you, or it's, it's also talked about that way in what is arguably the first time travel story, uh, the, A Christmas Carol. Where, um, <laughs> where, where, oh man, where, yeah, I hadn't thought about the Christmas Carol as a as a time travel yeah, story. Where, where Scrooge says to to the ghost of Christmas yet to come, are these the shadows of things that will be, or those that might, or of things that might be only? Um, hmm. um, and uh, and there's a, another. There are other ways of looking at at um, at time in which God's relationship to time is like that, in which God is in time with us. And that the future doesn't exist for God either. Um, and that, uh, that God has maybe, uh, you might say that, that God knows to some extent what might happen because God knows us really well in the same way that, that you know, you might say of, of your best friend or of some close family member, well, if you put this person in this situation, I don't know for certain what they would do, but I bet they'd do this. Um, that if you have really good knowledge of someone, you have an idea of how they would react in a given situation. And so maybe God's knowledge of the future is like that, where God has perfect knowledge of all of the, the physical conditions, and God has really good knowledge of our personalities. So God can say with mm -hmm. a high probability, yeah, this is what's likely to happen, but it's up to you. When I was in seminary, I, I was a... Uh... I was an, an arrogant little uh, seminarian who was pretty sure I knew <laughs> all the things. And uh, I had a professor who accused me of being uh, more influenced by Greek philosophy than by uh, the, you know, Christian theology. And uh, which is, which is something I that, fought back against that. that. Theologians have it, been accusing each other of since the first century. Sure, because it's true. Because what I was talking about were the the omnis of God, mm -hmm. 
that God is omnipotent, so all-powerful, omniscient, so all-knowing, omnipresent, so all, pre, all, all places, omnibenevolent, all-loving, these ideas of the omnis, which don't actually appear in Scripture, mm-hmm. but that so very color the way we think about God. And so w- what I was talking about was God being all-knowing, mm-hmm. so God knowing all of the things. And he challenged that, and he said, you know, where do you find that? And... Uh, Honestly, my, my, my basis of it was just the things that I was taught in Sunday school, that God, these are the foundational characteristics of God, but not necessarily in Scripture, other than in like the Psalms, which will say, you know, God, you've searched me, you know me high and low, all those things. Um, but he said, what if we follow instead the, the line of thinking from Philippians 2 and what we talk about, uh, kenosis, the emptying? Of, uh, of God, and that instead of saying that God knows everything, what if you were to say that God knows what God chooses to know, mm-hmm. that God is able to know everything, but in a way of, uh, as a way of interacting with finite beings, chooses instead to, to not know everything in order to interact with humanity. Mm-hmm. And so there is a kind of self-emptying in order to enter into our world, which, you know, if, if you imagine a three-dimensional object trying to interact in a two-dimensional world, that three-dimensional ad- object would have to lose some of its three-dimensionalness right. and be emptied of its depth in order to interact. As in Abbott, so one of those things... As, when, as in Edwin Abbott's great book, Flatland. Right. Which ended up being, I mean, that book was about economics, but ended up being a great illustration for all kinds of other things. It's also horribly sexist. Uh, I should, I should, you know, point that out. So so be warned if you go in, if you go in there, there is some, some really awful stuff about the female shape. Yeah, it's just a good illustration, but that's about yeah. it. <laughs> I, 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 I want to be careful. Of, I, guess, I called it a great book and I want to be careful about that because there are ways in which it is a super bad book. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, that's kind of where where process theology comes up. That God is intimately involved in the process of the unfolding of time. That God has emptied God's self, and that's how God interacts in time and space is by leaving the the timelessness and the unchangingness of the whatever imagined other dimensions, and instead becoming made flesh in in this existence. And that sounds really nice. Um, until I started learning about relativistic time yeah. and that there is no privileged present moment. Yeah. And that, so then in what pr- moment is God present in the now at that point? Yeah, if there is exactly no privilege that. now, exactly that. does God exist in a black hole where the, uh, the where time flows so drastically different? Mm-hmm. Um, does, does God exist on the photons? Does God exist in the now of you know, objects moving near the speed of light. It all kind of fell apart. And then the wonderful narrative of God growing and changing and loving and weeping with the death of the planet, all of that kind of fell apart too. And I was sad to lose my beautiful theology. Well, um, you you might be interested to know that there are philosophers and theologians out there um, who are struggling mightily um, to take that beautiful theology and make it compatible with relativity. Um. You're being you being one of them, right? Um, well, yeah. I mean, in my dissertation, I talk about a couple of different ways that people try to um, to reconcile that uh, that theology, which depends so much on flowing time, with relativity. Um, 
And uh, that, that idea of God is in time with us uh, is one of the ones that I look at. Um, it's, uh, that's, that's a way of looking at things that is being defended by, uh, by for instance, uh, William Lane Craig and John R. Lucas. Um, I think, you know, it's, uh, I think that the way that, that they go about, or I should say specifically the way that Craig goes about uh, trying to make this work in relativity leaves some, some really big unanswered questions. Uh, so I think it's it's maybe the less satisfying of of the two, um, but uh, when I was finishing the dissertation, but before I had time to really do the research and uh, and incorporate this, I was seeing some stuff about uh, other physical ways of looking at time that made me think, hmm, maybe if I were to sit down and and look at this in a future project there might be more to be said for, for um, that, that sort of God in time way of, of dealing with relativity. So that, that may be a future project. Um, and uh, I should also say that, um, that specifically that, that idea of, of God not knowing the future because it's thought, it, you know, is, is more a characteristic of Lucas's way of looking at things than Craig's because I think Craig takes a lot of the advantages of, of that way of thinking and throws them out the window again by insisting that God has to know everything that happens in detail. Um, mm. uh, well, which, so, you know, I know we are slowly getting, you know, we're starting to run out of time. I'm curious, how has the, all this work that you've done, the dissertation work you just talked about, you know, future ideas, future things you're curious about, how if at all, has it impacted or influenced your personal theological journey? Well, personal is exactly the word for it. Um, so that, uh, that brings me, I guess, to the, the other way of trying to reconcile flowing time with relativity that I think is the more satisfying one, um, which comes out of the work that the, uh, the theologian Robert John Russell uh, who is working at uh, the the, uh, the Graduate Theological Union out in Berkeley? Uh, is the director yeah. of the Center for Theology of the Natural Sciences is incidentally has incidentally been a great friend tonight, a great friend to me. Um, the way that that he tries to reconcile this um, is to say that a lot of the problems that um, that relativity causes here, or that we that we think of relativity as causing. Um, come from taking the idea of a now and trying to extend it in space, right? To say that there should be a single now that can encompass, you know, where I am here and where you are there and where somebody else is on Mars and where aliens are in the Andromeda galaxy, right? Whereas one of the things that um, relativity should tell us is that the idea of now is inseparable from the idea of here. The, what you have is not so much a universal now, the way you thought about it, but a here now. So I have <laughs> one particular now, and you, know, uh, you, Ian, in North Carolina, have a slightly different one. And you, Zach, in Eastern PA, have a slightly different one. And, um, you know, uh, 
the farther you are away, the, the more different your now is. And that the philosophers who want to say that, uh, you know, that, that everything breaks down because you can't fundamentally assign things to a past and present and future, the mistake that they're making is trying to take different nows and combine them into one. To say that what is real for me is real to, is real to you because we exist in this, you know, because we can interact with each other. You know, for instance, if, if I'm on the phone with one of you, right, um, and you're looking out your window and, you know, you're seeing the squirrels doing something weird out there the way they do, um, <laughs> that even if, even if you're not talking to me about the squirrels, um, that those squirrels and what they're doing is real to me on the other end of the phone. You know, that's the way we normally think about things happening, Right. That what's real to you where you are is real to me where I am, even if I don't know anything about it. And what Russell and a few others is saying is that maybe this is another one of those ideas that relativity should force us to abandon. Maybe what we should be thinking about is rather than, than one universal now that encompasses everyone, Maybe there are a myriad of individual here nows that go with each particular observer in each particular reference frame, whatever it might be. And they don't line up with each other, but maybe they don't have to. Hmm. Maybe because, you know, the thing is that all of, you, know, you, you disagree, we could disagree about what happens at the same time, or in some cases about the order that events take place, but we will never disagree about the causality of events, right? That's, that's one of the things that, the, 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 big, the big caveat to this, this story about, we tell about how relativity changes everything up, is that relative, in, even in relativity, even with all of these shenanigans about time, relativity never mixes up the order of events that are causally related to each other. You can always agree, no matter what reference frame you're in, that the cause happens before the effect. So in the end, we have different perspectives, but they kind of come out in the wash. And even though you might know something that I would consider, even so you might know something now that I would consider, you know, at a time that you would call now, that I would consider to be in the future. One of the things about relativity is that you can't get that information to me before it would come to me anyway. You can't get me, you can't transmit a signal to me at the speed of light in such a way that I find out about that event with advanced knowledge. <laughs> so maybe what we should do in, in Russell's point of view, is rather than saying that, that God exists in a single universal now that defines what now really means, the way Craig would have it, is to say that God is with us in each of our individual nows, and that that's God's way of, of perceiving the universe, is by looking at it through the eyes, so to speak, more or less metaphorically, of everything in the universe, that 
that rather than than sort of looking down at what's happening on the stage of creation from the royal box, so to speak, that God is is seeing what happens through the eyes of each of the actors, and you know for that matter potentially through the, through the eyes of all the props and all the pieces of scenery. And uh, if you go to uh, a couple of, uh, of, of theologians, or a number of theologians who get called the Boston personalists, Boston because they worked out of Boston University, um, you find that they have, uh, even outside the, the framework of relativity, already come up with a, uh, a way of, of thinking about God's interaction with the creation that looks a lot like this. Uh, one of them, incidentally, Edgar Brightman, was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, PhD advisor. So when, when he was becoming Dr. King, he was working with Edgar Brightman. Um, huh. So I think these, these two things kind of fit together in a, in a really productive, generative way. The idea that rather than personhood being this distortion of a timeless, pure, mathematical, non-linguistic reality. Maybe personhood is the core of what is. Hmm. Maybe our individual, different, irreconcilable ways of looking at the world is a really important feature of how the world is. And that because God, who created the universe, who brought the universe into existence, is a person, not exactly in the same way that we are, because God is infinite and has all sorts of characteristics that, as we talked about, we can't know about or even talk about very well, but that God's personhood is in some way analogous to ours. And so that personhood becomes a really important thing for us to keep in mind as we talk about existence, and that if we can't translate that personhood into mathematics, then that's okay. Because mathematics doesn't have to be the only tool that we use to describe how things are. Mm. Yeah, your explanation reminds me a lot of the way that Teresa of Avila saw the way that God interacts with people. Or she said, Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Mm -hmm. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, yours are the body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Right. And even, I, I think this it, it works beautifully well, even talking about uh, Christ's incarnation you know, during those 30-some years in, uh, in Judea, right? That, that when God became incarnate, speaking here as a Christian, that it was as a particular human being in a particular time and place. That God was this one guy with a very, who, who only walked around a very small area of the earth, right? That God did all that God had to do in that incarnation, even with this perspective that was very circumscribed, very short in terms of, of time, and very localized in terms of space. And, and that's okay. That's, that's just how things are. Tim, as, as always, Tim, um, you've given me things to think about. You've given me scientific things to reread, as well as new perspectives on my own personal faith and theology to reconsider. So, Thank you again for that. 
Um, any idea when this will all be turned into a book that everyone can read? Um, the, the ways of publishers are mysterious to, to us mere mortals. <laughs> um, yes, this is true. And um, oh, it's so true. And uh, one of the things that they unfortunately don't necessarily teach you in grad school is how to put together a book proposal. So that's something that I'm having to learn on mm. my own. But um, hopefully it shouldn't be too long. You know, though, though, of course, as 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 uh, as C.S. Lewis has got in the form of Aslan saying, I call all time soon. <laughs> <laughs> that is but definitely yeah. a great way to end. Yeah. Yeah. With a quote from Aslan. Yeah. So it's been such a joy to to be a guest on the podcast and just to talk to you two guys. You're so great. And thanks, um, Tim. We'll have to have you back on again sometime soon, Tim. Absolutely. Say the word, not, say the word, and I am there. And also then. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. Then and there at the same time. Yes. But also not. And oh, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Yep. God bless you all. 